you this morning. I know many of you guys were praying for us. Uh, Terry's mom uh, had, they consider a slight heart attack. I don't know if heart attack seems bad. I don't know if it's slight and otherwise. But anyway, she has recovered well, and it was good for us to be there. Just to, I think it made her feel better just having us around. So that was good. And I uh, was able to spend some time with my family on the way back home, my brother and his family and my parents. And so uh, we are... Uh, just grateful for those opportunities. But like I said earlier, grateful to be back. I really do walk into this feeling like I'm walking into a home where I'm with family. So it's good to be here with you. Uh, we've been looking at the letter of First John. And so we're going to pick back up where we left off last. But just as a reminder, uh, this is a letter that John the Apostle writes to a body of believers that he knows very well and loves very much. We learned he writes with an apostolic authority as an apostle, which simply means he gave witness to the life and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We understand that John is writing with an element of concern because of the confusion that has been created by a group of false teachers who once ministered among this body that John is writing to, but have since gone their own way. So John writes kind of in the wake of that destructive division in hopes of affirming the faith of those who have remained to be a part of this church family. He wants to give them an assurance of their salvation. That's the goal of his letter. Based on the the merits of Christ and His work of redemption in the lives of those who believe. And alongside that affirmation of faith, as we will see this morning, is a warning. A warning to not become distracted by the things in our world. See, John understands both then and now that the only way Satan gets a hold of us and and gets a foothold in our life is when we become convinced that what the world has to offer is somehow equal to or better than the promises of God. And these false teachers have bought into that lie and have become a a mouthpiece for that message of false hope. We know that. We'll look at this verse later on. But in 1 John 4, verse 5, speaking of the false teachers, it says, They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. This morning, we will see how John will expose, he will uncover their deceptive talk and remind this church body that he is writing to about the promises of God and the truths that they have through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is such a relevant passage in our world today where our enemy has employed a myriad of meaningless distractions. But really, there never has been a time where the message wasn't relevant. It has always been relevant. See, Satan has attempted to distract mankind since the beginning of time. And although he's crafty, he's really not all that creative. Because he's employed that same basic triad of temptation all throughout history. John calls it the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 
In fact, you can go back all the way to the Garden of Eden, a passage that we've looked at many times, Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, where Satan, in that form of a serpent, approaches Eve. And he gives her the apple. The text tells us that Eve saw that it was good for food. That it was a delight to her eyes. And that it was able to make one wise. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. You look at the temptation of Jesus in the desert after having fasted for some 40 days. Satan once again appears and approaches him knowing of this hunger that Jesus had. And he said, command these stones to turn into bread and eat to your fill. Lust of the flesh. Jesus, of course, denied that opportunity. So Satan continues his temptation, this time showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and tells him, take a good look, because these can be yours in exchange for your worship. Lust of the eyes. Jesus denied the opportunity. Satan comes back a third time. This time taking him to the temple and and telling him to to fall from the temple and see and test to, to see if God really does save you. Does He send His angels to protect you? Boastful pride of life to tempt the living God. He once again denied the opportunity. You see, Satan is crafty enough to change the outward appearance. But you and I need to understand that deep inside it's the same evil core. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. The sinful pride of life. Things that make us feel good. Things that make us look good. Things that give us a sense of power and control. It's important to recognize because it's always easier to win a battle when you know what's coming, right? I mean, just think of military history. And think about all the defeats that occurred because they were caught by surprise. That's their greatest advantage in a battle. I mean, look no further than our own American history and what happened at Pearl Harbor. Probably our greatest defeat in history. Why did it happen? Because we never saw it come. We were caught completely by surprise. But when you know what's heading your way, it allows you to prepare an adequate defense. And so what John does for us this morning is he exposes the deceptions of our enemy so that we know what's coming our way and we can prepare an adequate defense. That's why this is so important to hear and listen very carefully because if we want to have victory against Satan's attacks, this is a passage that we don't want to overlook. So before we go to the Word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I am thankful to be back with my church family, whom I love very much. I'm thankful for your word, for its promises, for its protection, for its warning in passages like we'll look at this morning. And I I pray that we hear it clearly so that we can be protected by the schemes of the enemy to distract us from our devotion in following you pray that we see into your heart in ways that reveals what's in our heart so that we can walk more closely with you without 
the distraction of a divided love. This is our request, and we make this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So if you will, turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. And let's read that together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John writing says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. You see, John begins his warning by describing how love is a choice. A decision of devotion that cannot be divided. It says... In verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He is very clear that the love of the world and the love of the Father cannot coexist. They're mutually exclusive. Now, John's not the only one who's made this same claim. In fact, James says essentially the same thing and develops it further. And so I want us to look at that together. Flip a few pages to your left to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1. Similar situation, James is writing also to a a church in the midst of chaos, confusion, because of quarreling and and division. Look at what he says in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He's identifying the fact that there is a battle going on, and that battle is between those who are following the Spirit and those who are following the flesh, and they are enemies against one another. And there's quarrels and fighting that exists. Look at what he says in verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, as you read this passage in its context, I don't believe he means literally that people are going around killing each other. But because of their envy, their bitterness, their jealousy towards one another, they're they're hurting each other deeply in their relationships. They're killing the fact that they are united together in a bond of peace. That selfishness comes to light when they start looking with envy about what others have. And then they seek to acquire more of the same on their own. When we were with my family, we spent some time at the lake. It's our thing. We enjoy being together uh, on the water. But that's a place where you look around, you see lots of pretty things. (laughs) Wow, look at that boat. That is an awesome boat. Did you see that wakeboard they had and those boots? I mean, we're just tying ours together like shoelaces. Wouldn't it be awesome? As adults, we look around us at what people wear the clothes that they have, the the houses that they live in. And it either creates within us a bitterness and a jealousy or an anger and an envy. But in either way, our heart becomes more and more dissatisfied because we are looking around constantly distracted by what others have and what it does to us because we want the same thing. And look what happens in this church. It says, you do not ask because... You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. 
See, these people are seeking to be fulfilled by pursuing what the world offers instead of trusting in God's provision. They're not going to Him asking for His will. Instead, they're saying, this is what I want. Why can't you give it to me? Because He's got it. Why shouldn't I? It's an attitude of, this is what I want. This is what's best for me. Without any consideration what might be best in the eyes of God. Look at the condemnation of James in the next verse. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's the same thing that John is saying in his letter. The word adulteresses is strong here. And once again, I don't believe he's speaking to this people who are going around living in sexual immorality, although that might have been the case. That's not his point here. His point is is that you are living with a divided love. Your devotion is divided by saying on one hand that you love God, while on the other hand, you're having an affair with the world. You adulteresses. See, love is a choice. In fact, in verse 4, it says, whoever wishes to be a friend, that word literally is chooses. James is saying the same thing. Love is a choice. You cannot seek to be fulfilled by what the world offers while also claiming to be satisfied with Christ. James goes on to describe the heart of God when he says, Or do you think that the Scriptures speak to no purpose? He, God, jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. See, God is jealous for our love. He will not share our devotion. To be a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God. Love is a choice. And we know from our passage in 1 John that the false teachers have made that choice, right? They've become friends with the world. Their devotion to the world was made evident when they walked away from this body of believers. And this is a key point. I don't want you to miss what what John is communicating here. Essentially what he's saying is that, that our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ exposes where our true loyalties lie. Only a heart that is devoted to God will result in a bond of peace with other believers. Now I want you to to keep in mind the, the condemnation that James had and listen to the encouragement that Paul has when he writes to the Ephesians. You don't need to turn there. Just listen for the contrast. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance toward one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Do you see the difference? You see, unity is not something that we create. I know a lot of times we talk about building unity. From my perspective, that's an inaccurate statement. Because unity is a gift from God to His church. Our job, to preserve it. The only other option we have is to destroy it 
by being distracted by the ways of the world and walking in the flesh that always battles the will of the Spirit. I want you to think about it this way. When I seek to be satisfied by what the world has to offer, it's up to me to get what I need. And if that's the case, you become an obstacle to what I want. Or in the case of the false teachers, you become an enemy when you don't line up with what I believe. So conflict is inevitable as we battle for control. But if my life is under the control of the Spirit, I don't look to the things that you have to satisfy the needs that have already been met in my relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, as Ephesians says, I have a new freedom to love you with humility and grace and gentleness that overflows out of the relationship that I have with my Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the love of God and the love of the world cannot coexist because love is a choice. And your relationships with others within the body of Christ, will tell you where your loyalties lie. John goes on to expose that deception that's employed by our enemy. Look at what he says in 1 John verse 16, chapter 2. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. See, the world in, in this context is... Uh, the things that are, exist under the, Satan's control. The Bible often refers to Satan as the prince of this world. It's anything that he might use to feed the appetite of our sinful flesh. Things that make us feel good. Things that make us look good. Things that give us a sense of power and control. Many of these things that he uses, we need to understand, in and of themselves, are morally neutral. They're not necessarily bad things. Very often, it's just the opposite. They're very good things that are used with the wrong motives. Another way to put that is a sinful desire always precedes a sinful act. A sinful desire always precedes a sinful act. Because ultimately, Satan's goal is to distract you from God's mission. And one of the best ways that he is employed to accomplish that is to create division among God's people. We see that in each of the three elements that he outlines in verse 16, the first of which is the lust of the flesh. Now we hear that and we automatically apply kind of a sexual connotation to that term. And that is not the case. It's not that exclusive when it applies to John's writing. His view is much broader than that perspective. He uses the term flesh to describe the nature of man in general. It is that innate desire in all of us to live for self instead of living for God. It is the selfish desire to, to pursue those things that I believe will satisfy what I want and what I think I need. Now, it might start with things that God created for our good that are then corrupted. Things like 
sex or food, for example. But when Satan convinces us that these gifts are ultimately intended purely for our pleasure and not for his glory, when they are pursued simply for personal gratification and and not for his good, then sex does turn into immorality and impurity. Food does turn into indulgence and obesity. So you can see why lusts of the flesh always lead to an excess, right? Because I do it because it makes me feel good. If it didn't, it wouldn't be a temptation. But our selfish appetite is never satisfied. It's insatiable. And so very often it turns into an addiction. And that's when the flesh goes on autopilot. You see, Satan wants us to convince us that the good things that God created are used in a way for our own personal glory and gratification. He wants to feed our appetite for selfish pleasure. That's the lust of the flesh. And the buffet line is limitless. It goes well beyond sex and food. It includes money, career, family, education, hobbies. None of these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when pursued with the wrong selfish motive, that's his evil intent. For example, the apple that the serpent gave Eve in the garden wasn't inherently bad. It was just that which God had prevented them, prohibited them from from eating. It was the delight in the eyes of Eve that made her say, I want which I know doesn't belong to me. It's that same desire that Achan had when they finished the battle of Jericho. Remember, Joshua was leading the troops. They go in and and God goes before them and, and they defeat Jericho. The city walls fell. But something didn't happen in the next battle. They, they were defeated. And, and Joshua came to God and said, what in the world is going on? Why did this happen? And he said, there's been a compromise. After some time, Achan came to Joshua. This is what he says. He says, when I saw in the plunder of Jericho a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, Listen to this. I coveted them and I took them. It's the same motivation behind David whenever he looked upon Bathsheba and desired in his heart what was not his to hold. In every case, I saw, I want, I take. The lust of the eyes is the temptation to be captivated by how things look on the outside without giving any consideration to their value and worth created by God outside of my own personal desires. See, the truth is, all that God has created, all that is good and right in His eyes, was created with a purpose, with with value. And when we're led by the Spirit, 
we understand and use it what He created it for, for that intended purpose. And we recognize what the enemy has done to corrupt it. But here's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to take those spiritual glasses off so that now you're looking through unredeemed eyes. And everything you see, you see as it is for you in your own personal benefit and gratification. The only thing I can see is what's good for me. I see, I want, I take. I pursue things that make me look good in the eyes of others. And when we feed that appetite of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is ultimately what consumes us. You see, Satan's goal ultimately is to make you, to make me, our own worst enemy. He doesn't want you to know that he's behind the temptations. In fact, Scripture says that he will go as far as to uh, look as an angel of light so that you don't see that he's behind what's going on. Instead, he wants you to feel so good about yourself and all that the world has to offer that you really don't pay any attention to him. In fact, your life might become so filled with good things and great times, that there's really just no more space to think about the things of God. Mission accomplished. It's true. We become so enamored with the distractions of the world that we start to believe the world's mantra that our happiness is our ultimate goal. And even God is important only as much as what he might be able to do for me, right? Now, we can go through the religious motions and and kind of look good on the outside just enough to ease our conscience, but the truth is we really believe that we're doing pretty good on our own. Our actions are motivated by our own sense of power and control. I know what's best for me, and that's how I make my decisions. And when that happens, there are some attributes that are really evident in our life. Here are some. Church, what we do in our fellowship, our gathering together, it becomes optional. If I have time and it fits into my schedule. Time in God's Word, I'll get to that once I look at the news for the day and some of my favorite internet websites that I like to view, right? And prayer, oh now listen, prayer is important, but usually only as a last resort when I've exhausted all other options. But these things in the heart of a committed disciple are not optional. They are necessities because we recognize that apart from Him, we can do nothing. We are completely dependent upon Him for that which satisfies our soul. And we know, as we sang about, and as Bob mentioned this morning, that that this world is not our home. That all that it has to offer is ultimately not what we are living for. And I believe that's John's point as well. Look at verse 17. He says, And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. What our 
enemy has to offer through the ways of the world does, in fact, give us pleasure. Let's be honest. It makes us feel good. It makes us look good. It gives us a sense of power and control. If that were not true, it wouldn't be a temptation. But it fades with time. It won't last. Because it has no eternal value. Because in the end, the world only gives us uh, weak, empty imitations of God's best. When we live for the world, what you see is what you get. But when you live for God, we believe and know that the best is yet to come. The hope of something yet future is ultimately what we are living for, not what this world has to offer. We have our eyes fixed on a prize not found in this world. There's a guy by the name of Chris Townsend. You guys know that I love to backpack and hike, and this guy is probably the premier, they call a thru-hiker in, in all of history. He's hiked in the wilderness um, hundreds of miles over weeks, months, even years at a time across the United States and beyond. Amazingly talented guy and surviving in the wilderness. Well, he had done this for some time and decided it was time to, to settle down. And so being a wilderness guy like he was, he wanted to go into the, the far reaches of isolation within the Yukon Territory. And so that was his choice. He went into that area and, and, and set up a place where he intended to live out the remaining days. But almost immediately, it began to close in on him. In fact, he became so depressed, almost suicidal, the man didn't last two weeks. <laughs> But why is that? I mean, he spent weeks, months, even years on the trail. Listen to what he says as his answer. He said, without a destination, I was incapable of finding the drive necessary to live. See, as Christians, we are driven by a destination as well. And I think like Chris Townsend, we become insane. We become depressed. We become overwhelmed if this world is all there is to offer. Because this is not our home. Instead, we strive toward a goal. A promise of life eternal. I love what uh, is written to Titus. Chapter 2, verse 11. Just listen to this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people, for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That hope of His glorious appearing, is what we are ultimately living for. As the writer of Hebrews says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who has promised is faithful. Now, like I said in the beginning, I believe that what this passage has to communicate is incredibly relevant for our lives today. We, like the audience that John is writing to, are easily distracted by the world and what it has to offer. 
And those distractions that our enemy has employed have become exponential, haven't they? They're all around us. To the point that often we can fill our lives with so many good things that surround us that we simply do not have any space left in our life to consider the things of God. Things that make us feel good. Things that make us look good. Things that give us a sense of power and control. So as I thought about this over the last week or so, I thought about a letter that I would write to you as my church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what I would say. My brothers and sisters in Christ, whom I care about deeply, as your pastor and friend, I want to encourage you not to be distracted by the ways of the world. Things that cause you to fall prey to the destruction of a divided love. Don't become so enamored with the good things in our world, so comfortable in the affluence and the freedoms of our society that you no longer give any attention to God's kingdom work on earth. Let's give Jesus the very best we have to offer and not what we have left after being satisfied with all these other things. Let me encourage you to take time to examine your heart, and very literally to examine your time, how you invest yourself in the time that you spend and what that tells you about what's most important in your life. Look at your relationships with one another. Because very often, and I've seen this over and over again, people will walk away from fellowship with one another when they are not, in fact, walking in fellowship with Christ. It's just not that important anymore. So take a look at those things that have become optional in your life. Things you do if you have time. And see if they should be given a place of higher priority. Things like fellowship with one another. Things like time in God's Word. So that you have guidance in your life. Things like prayer where you are in a posture of dependence before our God and Father. Remember, love is a choice. So let me encourage you to give your very best in devotion to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Simplify your life and give your greatest energy and attention to His good and perfect will. Do everything to the glory of God. And invest yourselves in those things that carry out His mission given to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to go and make disciples. That's why we're here. So may all we do be done to the praise and glory of His grace who saved us, who's called us to be a part of His family, and who has commissioned us to proclaim the good news to others. Let's pray. God, thank you for exposing the tactics of our enemy so that we can see what's coming. Help us to be prepared and to even now examine our heart to see if there's ways that he has fooled us, that he has convinced us to hold on to things that have no eternal value. 
Father, as we examine our heart and ask ourselves these questions, help us to see what is true, what is right, what is good. Help us to to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to walk humbly in devotion to Him that's undivided. And may we see that reflected in our commitment to be in relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not good for man to be alone. May we be committed to our relationships with one another. And may we do everything to the praise and glory of your name. That's our prayer. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.